You have liberty, as I have felt, to decorate your home, exchange gifts, enjoy special meals, take time off to be with your family. Should you feast, so to speak, with your pocketbook, your mouth, your eyes, and your time? I ask the question because some Bible believers say you shouldn't go to all this extravagance. There's nothing in the Bible that commands celebrating Christmas. We have no idea if Jesus was born on December 25th exactly, and it's certainly wrong to mix non-religious symbols in our worship of God. But I'm asking you the question because, on the one hand, I don't want you to just go along with everyone else because they're celebrating without thinking about it. Nor should any of us shun our celebrating for the wrong reasons. So that your Christmas then could be intentional, guilt-free, and edifying. I want to answer the question, can we feast in the affirmative? We should feast for celebration, and we should feast for reflection. Well, let's look at those two things, and clearly the first is going to take the longer portion of the sermon. Should we feast? Yes, we should feast, we should celebrate for celebration. Turns out celebrating, feasting, is God's idea, and it starts in the heavens. You know, the angel appears to the shepherds out there, and he has an announcement. Uh, Christmas is fundamentally an announcement. It's an announcement from heaven to everyone on the earth that God has brought a savior. His name is Jesus. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And what happens once the angels, uh, the angel gives the uh, shepherds the message? Well, all of heaven is rejoicing. We're told that the glory of the heavenly host is rejoicing in heaven. Verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, glory to God in the highest. Their praise is a form of celebration. They're delighting in who God is and what he has done for helpless sinners. And so we too ought to mirror that heavenly celebration in our rejoicing. We're celebrating, we're reveling, we're rejoicing, we're delighting in who God is and what he's done for us as Savior. So it's no accident when you read through the birth narratives, all the main characters are said to rejoice. Mary, her relative Elizabeth, even the baby John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb is rejoicing. The, the, uh, the shepherds go off rejoicing, and in, we're told in Matthew's gospel that when the Magi find Jesus, they too are rejoicing. And this is exactly what you'd expect, beloved. When we experience good things, we want to celebrate. Birthday, celebrate. Graduation, celebrate. Promotion, celebrate. Wedding, celebrate. Winning a championship, celebrate. It's God's idea. See, what resonates in the human heart is simply an imitation of God. Think about how God says he celebrates you 
you who belong to his son Jesus, through the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 317. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in his love. God will exalt over you with singing. God celebrates your salvation. God rejoices. God feasts in his being that you belong to him through Jesus. So let's make sure our feasting on earth is legitimate. When Moses is preparing the people of God, Israel, after their departure from slavery in Egypt, they've come through the, uh, the Exodus, and there are books written in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that God is preparing his people for entering their homeland, Israel. There's a lot they need to know. One of the things he tells them in Leviticus is they need to feast. Leviticus 23, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you should proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. God has feasts. They're his. And he wants his people on earth feasting along with him. And so then he lists them. We have Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, Feast of Booze. And the principle is very clear. God wants his people to stop their normal activities and relish good things for a season. So think about it. The fact that you cease from work means your work is good, you're expected to work, and if you stop working, God is trustworthy to meet your physical needs even though you're not producing at that moment. And the fact that you are able to feast implies what? You've saved enough through the year to feast upon. And the fact that the feast lasts for a limited period of time tells you what? Feasting should not be a way of life, but periodic. So look at your heart and ask these two questions. Am I living to feast? I ask because when you look around at your culture, our culture seems to feast on entertainment and on consumption. It, it seems like it's a culture that has an insatiable appetite to grab entertainment and things. You can maybe even add information to that. It's probably true that many of your neighbors work in order to feast. They view work as a means to an end. I work so that then I have time and I have money to do what I really want to do. The Bible teaches us that work is an end in itself. We work by mirroring a God who is working. Jesus said in John 5, my father is working and I am working. Your work is good. It's not meant to be seen simply to get a paycheck, but to reflect the, uh, the glory of the God who gave us this world to care for. 
So ask yourself, am I slipping into the cultural era of living to feast? Secondly, are you feasting on the living? Are you feasting on the living? Each of Israel's feasts anticipates in some way and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So that means that as you think about the pleasures associated with feasts, then the ultimate human pleasure is being in communion with the living, risen Christ. Are you feasting on the living? He's the living Savior. He's a person in whom we were made to find unspeakable pleasure. The pleasure of everything, everything human you experience points you beyond to the pleasure of being one with Christ. And the rest that you experience, the cessation from your labors that you experience in your feast, this pictures the ultimate human rest being found resting in the work of Jesus Christ for your salvation. You could put it this way, just as when you're off from work, you have nothing to prove to your boss, <laughs> When you're on Christmas Day, you're not working. He's not looking over your shoulder. So because you belong to Jesus, you have nothing to prove to God. You're accepted in the beloved, righteous in Christ, cleansed in Jesus Christ. We could take time. I, I, I don't have the time this morning to tease out the ways feasting on Jesus is satisfying emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, and relationally. Yes, you're hearing me say there should be an abundance of pleasure knowing Jesus. And I would encourage you to seek that pleasure. Keep seeking that pleasure until you can say, nothing I desire compares to you. It takes time. <laughs> you know, you can get pleasure instantaneous buying a new gadget. Instantaneous pleasure eating something good. Pleasure listening to good music. In God's economy, it takes time. Being quiet, settling your souls. Reading the word of God. Seeking Jesus in prayer. It takes time. But that has to be the ultimate human pleasure. Keep seeking him until you can say, nothing I desire compares with you. Let's look at a few more aspects of these feasts that God sets up. His feasts for his people Israel. He's commanding it. He's the God of feast. First, they mark the calendar. They measured time. They're called God's appointed times. So the Sabbath, it's a weekly feast that says, work six, rest one day and seven. My heart goes out to people in this world who live in cultures where essentially they are forced to work seven days a week and never get to rest. It's just horrible, terrible. God wants you feasting time-wise one in seven. The year of Jubilee marks every 50 years. Passover marked the new year when God was getting ready to deliver his people from Egypt. He instituted the Passover in Exodus 12 too. This month, 
shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. God is saying, you're not going to mark time the way the pagans do. You're going to mark time celebrating your deliverance as a people. You're going to mark time reveling in the covenant of grace. That's the way we should measure time. God has brought you to himself as a people. That should start the year. So when you celebrate New Year's in, what, 17 days? You need to think about God claiming you. Celebrate the church, your church. God, you've kept faithfulness to your covenant another year. And as we look ahead, what will you do in faithfulness with your people, among your people in the year ahead? The feasts mark time. They also mark abundant grace. So I want to probe this question a little bit further. Why does God say in these feasts, stop working? and have a feast? Well, simply because we have something to celebrate. God's goodness, God's provision, God's help, his character, his salvation. <laughs> and compared to all the feasts, we have something infinitely better in Jesus. Something much better is here than all the feasts combined on steroids. Jesus Christ. So, the feasts call us to celebrate what God has done, what he's doing, and what he will do. And when you look at the ministry of Jesus, recorded public for you in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you realize Jesus kept all the feasts of Israel as a faithful Hebrew. He was down to, he did. But there was more. We're told in John's Gospel, John chapter 2, he shows up at a wedding feast in Cana. He, he sanctions the beauty, the legitimacy, the God-ordainedness of wedding, of marriage. And at that wedding, he turns water into the best wine that's ever been made in the history of the universe. Jesus feasted at this wedding with the people who were there. A tax collector named Levi is converted what does he do? What would you do on your conversion? Better than a promotion, better than getting married, better than getting a new car, better than your team winning the championship. You're converted. What does he do? He throws a feast. Luke 5, 29, Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Uh-oh. Oh, those sinful people joined them. That's, of course, Levi was a tax collector. He was hated by his countrymen. And Jesus, all these people are drawn, all the broken, all the destitute, all the people who knew. We're the outcasts of society. We have real problems with our morality. These people were drawn to Jesus because they saw in him hope, life, forgiveness, a different way to live, freedom. Levi, it was a feast. Jesus is there feasting. In fact, I guess Jesus did enough of these that his reputation among some of his countrymen was, even according to Jesus' own words, Luke 7, 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus was aware that the word on the street was because he went to some of these feasts. Now, he was certainly not sinfully overeating or overdrinking. Certainly not. He never sinned. 
but looked at from a distance and misunderstood, his enemies called him a drunkard and a glutton because he was at feasts. There's a famous chapter in the Bible, Luke 15, where we learn about feasting and what's going on in the heavens when sinners repent. It's the parable of the lost things. Luke 15, 10, the you find something lost, you're rejoicing humanly. I found my keys, yay, I found the code, I found the password to my whatever, right? You're rejoicing, of course. Luke 15, 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God in heaven over one sinner who repents. You realize when you were converted, there was a party in heaven. There was joy, there was rejoicing. Celebrate, that person came to Jesus. And then the last part, portion of those three lost uh, items is the lost son, the story of the prodigal son. He returns, and his father says, eh, it's about time, come on, go back to work. No. The father throws a feast for his son, verse 32, telling the older brother, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad this brother of yours was dead, is alive, he's lost, is found. God's attitude when a sinner repents is feast, feast, feast. So it is no wonder, Paul says of the Lord's Supper, let us keep the feast. And that the culmination of earth history is nothing less than a wedding feast. Jesus told the parable in Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding for his son. Now the story goes on and basically pleads with you, why aren't you responding to the invitation? Well, why wouldn't you respond to an invitation from God Almighty to feast with him for eternity? Why wouldn't you respond to that? Think about that if you haven't. Any of us at Wallace would love to talk with you about that. But the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Yes, the parable uh, delineates those who aren't responding to the invitation, but it begs what question? Who's the bride of the son? If the father's giving his son a wedding feast, who's the bride? It's all of us who belong to Jesus. It's his church, the bride. So you get to Revelation 19. And we have this vision of what happens at the end of earth history. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out. This is what is worthy of the loudest sound in earth history. This. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. This is where everything is going. Being married to Jesus, sitting down. He, Jesus even tells us in the Gospels, he's going to serve us at that feast. That's another sermon for another day. And, he, and uh, this vision tells us that the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. How are you preparing for the feast? Righteous deeds could say a lot more about that. We have a picture of this to some degree from the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before, Isaiah 25, 6, and 7. If you think God's a killjoy, you haven't read this. 
on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. God is making that food for us to feast with him. I'm not going to worry about how much butter and how much cholesterol is in all that food. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. Christ will put death away forever. So we will feast, never fearing we'll die. I've got a couple of Old Testament scriptures for you in the outline that, that, that seem to indicate that what God commands borders on extravagance. Deuteronomy 16, verse 13. You shall keep the feast of booze seven days, and when you've gathered in produce from your threshing floor, from your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast. That's why I'm making the case, why wouldn't you rejoice celebrating the birth of Jesus? You and your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are with you in your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose because the Lord your God will bless you and all your produce and all the work of your hands so that you will be all together joyful. Don't miss a component of that. All together joyful because God has blessed you. Who are you sharing it with? The widow, the sojourner, the poor. I think we need to learn to do a better job inviting the disenfranchised into our holiday celebrations. And then read earlier in the service was this passage from Deuteronomy 14, 26. It just, it's just stunning what God says we're free to do. I want to read it and point out one thing. Deuteronomy 14, 26. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from your field year by year, and before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose, so you're always feasting in God's presence. Therefore, your feasting can't lead you to sin because you're feasting in God's presence. You're mindful of God having provided all these things. Eat the tithe of your grain, your wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you and you're not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord God blesses you, because the place is too far, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then turn it into money, bind up the money in your hand, go to the place the Lord your God chooses, and spend the money for whatever you desire. Spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. You're commanded to do that by God. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns. He has no portion or inheritance with you. Here's the one thing I want to call to your attention. Verse 23. You're doing all this that you may learn to fear the Lord. Therefore, 
if your feasting doesn't foster fear of the Lord, it's fraudulent. Okay, cutesy, all those Fs. If your feasting doesn't foster fear of the Lord, it isn't feasting, it's fraudulent. So this, is, this text is inviting us to think more intentionally, more carefully, more biblically, more in a more God-centered way about our feasts. And we can but mourn for our neighbors who celebrate Christmas but don't understand the glory of the meaning of it. So you're rejoicing in God's blessings, remembering what? That the giver is better. So boys and girls, at Christmas, you're going to get some toys. Some of you will get clothes, books, electronic gadgets you have been craving for so long. Great, you want it? It's your parents' pleasure, like it's God's pleasure to give us good gifts. It's your parents' pleasure to give you these good gifts. Remember, as much as you enjoy that gift, Jesus is better. The pleasure you have, the satisfaction, there is an unending pleasure knowing Jesus. I mean, how does God talk about his presence? Psalms 16, verse 11. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand pleasures forever. How infinitely better that is than anything money could buy you at Christmas. So whatever your gifts, all of us, let it point you beyond to the gift of knowing Christ and enjoying his presence. So the point I'm making is feasts are tangible reminders of grace, abundant salvation, foretastes of glory. You might have a lot of food on the table at Christmas. What is that picture? Abundant grace and mercy. So David in Psalm 4, when he celebrates deliverance from his enemies, David says, uh, you have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and wine abound. So when the harvest is full of grain and wine, there's joy, there's rejoicing. God provided this, great. But you put more joy in my heart because you've delivered me from my enemies. I think Jamie alluded earlier in the prayer to Psalm 8110, a prayer of Asaph, when God speaks to his people, he says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That's the kind of God we worship. He longs to bless his people. And so I, the point is just as there it will be for most of us, and if not, let the deacons know. We have resources to share with you. Most of us, there'll be abundant food on our tables, so there is abundant grace for sinners. And that's really good news for people who are growing as Christians because the more you grow as a Christian, the deeper you discover the depths of sin in your heart. Growing Christians are confronted more and more consistently with the heinousness and the hideousness of their own pride and all its manifestations. And what do you need to know in the face of that discovery? That God's mercy and grace superabounds at all. Paul says in Romans 5, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Mercy is stronger than our rebellion. In that same psalm, Psalm 81, it ends by saying this. God speaking through the psalmist Asaph, I would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock 
I would satisfy you. Christian, have you not been fed the finest of wheat, the living bread, Jesus Christ? Honey from the rock. Is that not a prefiguring of the resurrection of the glorified body of Jesus from the tomb, the rock? I think so. We have so much more to celebrate than all those believing Israelites. So, beloved, don't feast without thinking about superabounding grace and feast on grace until it nourishes your soul to what? To good works. Titus 2, 11, the grace of God has appeared, Jesus, bringing salvation for all people, feast, rejoice, but that grace trains us, it coaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will start the wedding feast for us, with us, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good deeds. Your feasting, your good presence, time off, as enjoyable as that is, is a marker to a life redounding in righteous service to God. That's the first point. I told you it was the longest. The second one is much shorter. But what else do we have to do? So we should feast for celebration, we should feast for reflection. Feasting requires you to stop working, spend time in another way. In God's economy, time isn't money, time is holy. And you don't appreciate that till you stop. Let me just show you two, two ways to think about feasting for reflection. First, ponder how God is working in your life. Just don't sail through the holidays and, you know, the holidays end, you look back and you go, I did a lot of feasting and that was about it. No, 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 you've missed an opportunity. Think about how God is working in your life. Stop working, rest. Shut out the voices vying for your attention. Be, be comforted with David, Psalm 31. My times are in your hands. And ask, how is God dealing with me? How is God using me? How's he not using me? I wonder how many significant kingdom of God projects were born when people stopped working, had time to reflect and listen and in the spirit of Moses, in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. In that sense of quietness, you're focused again, your life, oh yes, my life is about God's glory, not my own. What things might be birthed? Paul says that maybe Paul's equivalent of that is Philippians 2.13. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, what's he doing? How are you serving him? I'll bet for some of you, there are ways you could serve the church more than you are. Think about that over the holidays. Some of you know that my daughter, Laura, is on staff with RUF, our, the PCA's College Ministry Reform University Fellowship. She's about 20 women who, who are devoted full-time to serving women on college campuses. And one of the things they do as a part of her work is she sets aside a day for prayer, a day for reflection. She's doing what, what I'm talking about here. In her recent newsletter, she sent out a link to a prayer that she would wrote called The Garden Prayer. And I just want to read you a portion of it because 
it, to me, it, it invites me into the fruit of what her personal reflecting allowed her to pray. And I realized, man, sometimes I'm just too busy, distracted, lazy to pray this way. So let me read uh, some of this prayer for you. And if you're interested in the whole thing, I can send you a copy or, uh, yeah, email me and I'll send you a copy of the whole prayer. This is a portion of it, Laura's prayer. I invite you to pray the same. Lord, I give you every area of my life and ask you to search me. Show me what weeds need to be pulled out of the soil of my heart. Give me eyes to see what is growing that doesn't belong here and shouldn't be receiving nutrients. Open my eyes to the dirt on the fence that I've grown accustomed to and have forgotten that it is not clean. What sin or unbelieving posture has begun to feel normal in me? Root it out. Forgive me for dwelling upon what actually destroys me and distracts me from enjoying work with you and alongside you. Soften the soul of my heart to hear and to receive your word. Break up the fallow ground of my heart. Come and rain righteousness upon me so that I may sow righteousness and steadfast love. Forgive me for the ways I've purposely and unintentionally sown iniquity and lies and reaped injustice. May I always be planted by the life-giving streams of your word so that I may love righteousness. Water my heart with your word. Nourish the soil of my heart with your grace and your truth. Plant in my heart greater, effect, greater affection for you so that the love and obedience may bear fruit. Protect me from the bugs and pests of the evil one that would seek to eat away at the fruit you are bringing forth in me. Help me to seriously guard against threats. Give me joy and obedience in tending the garden you have given to me day by day. Forgive me for my laziness and neglect, for thinking that I change, that change will come apart from my co-laboring with you. Forgive me for the ways I staple fruit on the trees, thinking that my outward behavior is pleasing enough when you really want my heart. My final point. We are feasting for celebration. We've made a lot of, talked a lot about that. We feast for reflection, and I just want to lastly say we refleased refle we re we we, so that we'll be humbled. If you read about the Feast of Israel, all of them require sacrifices. One requires fasting, what's called affliction. What's that tell you? It tells you there can ultimately no, be no human feast with integrity that pleases God until your heart has found life in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There's no amount of giving up, there's no amount of celebrating, there's no amount of work, there's no amount of effort, there's no amount of religion that can make you right with God. It took the sacrifice of his son. I mean, Christmas, Christmas, what's the message of a Christmas? You are so awful. God had to become flesh. On your own, you are so wrecked, so helpless, so unable to please God. God had to die in your place. He had to sacrifice himself for you. That's, that's the message of Christmas. Christmas should humble us. And maybe we need to fast a little. And Jesus, you know, we think about the end of his life. He, he went to the cross. No doubt he'd fasted from food for quite a while, water. His, his lifeblood was draining out of him. And he fasted oxygen as he breathed his last. 
on the cross to bring you a salvation that can never be taken from you, to make you perfect before God. That's worth celebrating. It's worth being humbled over. And it's worth telling other people about. Let's pray. Jesus, you told us, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Why? Because that's us when you invite us to your eternal wedding feast. Thank you that there's a day coming when we don't need to wear watches, we won't mark time, we won't look at the calendar. It will be an eternal day of glory with you, working with you. Thank you that we were blind, but now we see. We were lame, but now we walk. We were dead, but now we're alive because of your magnificent grace. We should feast. We should celebrate that. We should do with, so with reflection, with humility, and with concern for the poor. Bring these to pass for the glory of your name, the betterment of our neighborhood. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond with Trinity 207, good Christian men rejoice. Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now the year of endless bliss, Jesus Christ was born for this. He hath opened heaven's door, and man is blessed evermore. Christ was born for this. Christ was born for this. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave, Jesus Christ was born to save. Calls you one and calls you all, to gain his everlasting all. Christ was born to save, Christ was born to save. And be seated as if you were standing, we want to respond.